Hello, I'm Albert Brooks. I've just completed a motion picture so exciting that the following announcement will be presented in 3D so you can literally feel the excitement. You will find special glasses under each of your seats. Put them on now, won't you? Oh, if you happen to be in a theater that has no glasses, don't worry. You can share in the fun, too. Simply turn to the person you're sitting next to and borrow a piece of red and blue cellophane. Then put one over each eye like this. Got it? Good. Now we're all ready to enter into the world of 3D. Well, hello again. A little different, isn't it? Does it scare you? <laughs> oh, come back, come back. I'm just having some fun. I didn't mean to scare you. I like you. That's why I want to tell you about a new movie called Real Life. Real Life tells the story of what happens when a real family's life is turned into a major motion picture. That family could have been you, or you, or you. Just the idea makes me thirsty. Look, a refreshment. What a lucky break. Mm, it's good. Want some? You're welcome. Well, we're almost out of time. My watch is gone. Somebody stole my watch. Somebody in this theater stole my watch. Yes, you took advantage of this special process and you snuck right up on the screen and took my wristwatch. Well, let me tell you something. I may look like a schmuck to you, but this is one schmuck that knows Kung Fu! What's that noise? Excuse me. Oh, my God. I'm Randy Brown. You're the world champion paddleball player. Right. What are you doing here? I've come to see a new movie. Real life? Right. Well, Randy, you're a little early and hasn't opened yet. Then I'll just leave. Oh, no, 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 don't leave. I mean, what a coincidence. As long as you're here, thrill us. Okay. Oh, my. Mind if I join you? This could be amazing. Gee. Randy. It looks like you're actually here. Hello, and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and my pal Max Romero is back. Hi, Max. Hey, Rob. Uh, we are here to complete the Albert Brooks cycle. Uh, Max and I have been talking about Albert Brooks's movies as a director for a couple of years now, and we have worked our way through Modern Romance and Defending Your Life and Lost in America, and now we're winding back to uh, Brooks's first film, 1979's Real Life, which I would argue, Max, you think you agree with me, that this is probably, even people that have seen his movies are probably not, this one's the most obscure of the four? I would, I think I would agree with that, Rob. Um, I also think and I think I say I think I've said this on every Brooks movie that we've talked about, <laughs> but I think this might be my favorite. Oh, <laughs> really? Wow. Okay. Cool. Um, just because you know, I, I rewatched it last night, and I laughed through the entire thing. Yeah. Ugh. And so many, you know, Brooks movies. I mean, I laugh at every Brooks movie, but there's some that are just kind of uncomfortable, or they're awkward, and or they have, you know, uh, more down key moments. But this is just absurd on top of absurd, <laughs> and it's just just when you think it couldn't get worse, it does, and it's I just laughed my way through the entire thing. Yeah, I, I warned Max at the beginning before we started recording that I was hoping that the show wouldn't descend into just the two of us trading lines back and forth. But that's that tends to be what these episodes become because they are these movies are so funny, and of course he does have other movies than the four that we've sort of talked about, and I will mention those at the end. But I really feel like the four his first four films: Real Life, nineteen seventy nine; Modern Romance, nineteen eighty; Lost in America, nineteen eighty five; and Defending Your Life, nineteen ninety one are masterpieces, essentially comedic masterpieces. Now, I will also, uh, I'll warn you, Max, at the end, although you just tipped it, I'm going to ask you to rate the four films in terms of your favorite to your least favorite. Ooh. We love them all. Ooh, but yeah. 
But um, I do, before we get into the, the film itself, I do want to give a little bit of a history of where Brooks was when he came to this. Because, of course, Albert Brooks was hired as a short filmmaker for the first season of Saturday Night Live. And he would do these original films and they would play on SNL every week during the show's first season because they weren't, Pot, Lorne Michaels and, and NBC, they were not sure that people wanted to watch this group of ruffians that nobody had heard of doing live sketches. So they front-loaded the show with names that people were familiar with. And one was Albert Brooks because he had had a long history of being a comedian, a, a recurring comedian on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And The Muppets. They had The Muppets uh, segments as well. And so have you ever seen any of the Brooks short films for SNL? You know, I probably have, but I this is all new to me. I had no idea that he did those. Yep. Yeah. They appeared every week and they were, they varied from, they were all featuring Brooks for the most part, generally playing himself or as we'll see in real life, an extra dickish version of himself. Um, there is, there was one in particular called the impossible truth, which is a faux documentary, which is, I would say stylistically is the closest thing to what he would do in real life. And the impossible truth was just all about going around the, the America and, and presenting weird stories. And it was all fake. It's all phony, but it was done in this faux documentary, this uh, you know, faux documentary style. And um, they're all very funny. And the problem is, is that as the SNL cast started to gel and the writers started developing more and more material, they realized they didn't need all this extra other stuff that was being shoehorned into the show. So the Muppets eventually left. They eventually stopped doing the Muppet segments. And Albert Brooks's films were – Albert Brooks has said later uh, that he felt like his films were regarded as this intruder that showed up in the pouch every week from Los Angeles. And it turned out that that was actually true. Uh, the writers didn't <laughs> like these movies because they just felt like, well, he's not part of the cast. He's not, he's right. not one of us. So even though the films are brilliant, uh, they were eventually dropped. So I think after 13, uh, he stopped doing – in fact, there's one where it follows Brooks uh, supposedly getting open-heart surgery that was so long that they had to insert a commercial in the middle of it. Wow. So it was so long. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the films are virtually unavailable. Um, there's no DVD of them. If you go to albertbooks.com, he's been promising that there's going to be a collection of them, but th- that was like 10 years ago, and I've never seen them. So, And it's, and I think that the even the SNL reruns that you can see on Hulu, I don't know that they have them. So they're, they've just kind of disappeared, which is a shame, because I remember them being as – they're very, very funny. I mean, Brooks's comedic persona was already fully formed by the time he was doing these movies, so they're they're really, really funny. Right. Yeah, no, I've I've never – I'm sure I saw – I've seen at least some of those movies. But I, like I said, I had no idea that that was Albert Brooks. Yep, yep. That was him. So, And he worked on them with Harry Shearer who worked on, mm-hmm. worked on this movie. And so, of course, for anyone who hasn't seen Real Life, uh, the, it's, it's ostensibly a parody of the PBS documentary called An American Family, which was a miniseries that ran in I think 1976. And it followed the Loud family. Uh, which is not a joke. That's their actual name. And, uh, it sounds like an SNL sketch. In fact, I think it literally was the Loud family. It was all just people yelling. Um, but uh, it, it followed this family and just see what ha- saw what happened to them. And, and it, it, it was a sensation. I mean, it was really the beginning of, rea- quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, reality television. And so this is Brooks' view of that. And in fact, in the opening crawl of this movie, it mentions that. It even you know, directly owns up to its inspiration of, hey, we're going to do the same thing. So the whole setup here is that Albert Brooks playing himself, again, a heightened version of himself, <laughs> uh, is going – has got a major movie studio to back uh, his project where he's going to follow a family for an entire year. And the opening parts of the movie is, is we see he goes to this institute and they have all these doctors and they're going to pick – they're going to have uh, – they're going to have all these different families show up and, and see if they can be in the movie, and then he's going to determine which family to follow. But as you might imagine, it all goes horribly wrong uh, because, I mean, the general thesis of this movie is that, of course, there is no such thing as reality television or reality movies because the minute you point a camera at somebody, you change it. The, the person starts acting slightly different because they know they have a camera on them, and that's the whole thing of it. And Max, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but there is a line early in this movie, which to me sums up the entire Albert Brooks's like 
raison d'etre, like his <laughs> right. persona, where he introduces himself and he talks about how he is a comedian. But he said he wasn't always meant to be a comedian. And he has this line, which he says to the audience. So do you want to tell everybody what the line is? If I had studied harder or been graded more fairly, I could have been a scientist. <laughs> like that, like I, I, to me, that's everything of Albert Brooks is that persona. He has to get the dig in. If I had been graded more fairly, it's never his fault. That is, I am always so impressed when a screenwriter, and I should mention, this is, um, uh, uh, this was written by uh, co-written by Harry Shearer and Monica Johnson, his longtime collaborator. Anybody that can get across a character so effectively with one line, I'm so right. impressed by that because it it's so efficient that you you immediately know who this guy is just from that from saying something as ridiculous as if I had been graded more fairly. It's just <laughs> everything. Well, and there's a there's a similar line too where he's he's. Uh talking about the research and, and all this stuff. And he says, I could tell you that there's a reason why I chose one family over another. He goes, but I'm a comedian, not a liar. And <laughs> it's just like, he's just so full of himself in his movie. I have the luxury of honesty. <laughs> because he's, you know, he is surrounded by researchers and scientists and, you know, people who know, and he does not listen to any of them. Right. <laughs> And and it's and, and he's just so sure of himself, and it's it's part of the comedy comes from how uh, self assured he is. While he, everyone around him, to everyone around him, it's obvious that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right, he's in completely in over his head, but he's but he right. has. It, that's the thing I always found so fascinating about the Albert Brooks's persona because it's this absolutely toxic mix. Of arrogance and insecurity, and yes. that I find just absolutely compelling to to watch because he's he's somebody who deeply deep down deep down insecure, but also just barrels through because he is kind of in love with himself, and so <laughs> I just I love that whole idea. Now, before we get too far, I do want to mention the trailer, which uh, you heard the audio of uh, leading off this episode. The trailer is about three minutes long, and it features no footage from the movie. It is Albert Brooks sitting at a desk telling you about the movie you're going to see real life. Then he talks about how real life, the movie is going to be in 3d, which is of course is not. <laughs> and the trailer then goes into quote unquote 3d where you see the, the blue image and the red image of Albert Brooks. And they actually had to put up a crawl saying the, the real movie will not be in 3d. And he keeps going on and on about the magic of 3D of how much more realistic it is. And he starts talking about – he's like, oh, look, I have a beverage. Oh, no, I might spill it. And he throws it into the camera. He then brings on a guy who's a, um, a ping-pong battle – a ping-pong paddle champion to knock the balls <laughs> to the screen. It's insane. It's just like what would – like why would you think this would sell this movie? And that – to me, it's like that's how you – that's how – Brooks separates his audience from his not audience because they think if you watch the right. trailer, you go, "Man, I can't wait to see this movie." And if you watch the show and go, "What the f was that?" Well, then you're not going to appreciate the movie anyway. Just from your description, I'm already crying. Right, just exactly. Just for that description. Yeah. And but the thing is too is that while that trailer has nothing to do with the movie, other than the fact that you know he talks about, you know, he mentions the title of the movie, but the. Uh, that's kind of what the movie is like too, because he's the movie throughout the entire movie. He's talking about how this is going to be real life and this is going to be about real things. And, you know, as you mentioned, the movie is, isn't about any of that at all because in the entire movie, everyone is so conscious of, of the fact that a movie is being made, that there's cam <laughs> the cameras. We got to talk about those cameras. Uh, the cameras are, are following them constantly. And, in a way, his movie, you know, it, it's even titled Real Life, but it's not about a real life at all. No. It's about people reacting to this sudden attention that they're getting. Right. I mean, the whole, the whole, I, I mean, first of all, I love you, you mentioned the cameras. We have to talk about the cam the Hour <laughs> 5000s, which are these ridiculous, <laughs> one eyed thing, giant helmets that people wear. And, you know, it's kind of funny, like, how ahead of Brook, how ahead of his time Brooks is, because. In the movie, people are filming using chips, using digital chips. It's like, yeah. which which are taken out and mailed to Los Angeles right. to be transferred to film. Right. So, 
So there's this extended sequence at the at the institute where we meet all the different families, and then eventually they settle on one. They well, they they uh, all their research produces two perfect families, and there's right. this awkward scene where we have the two families, and there's the Feltons from Wisconsin. And the Jaegers from Phoenix, Arizona. And they are perfectly evenly matched. And we see them all together. And it's, it's a husband, a wife, a son and a daughter on both sides. And they have this awkward conversation. And uh, Brooks talks about, well, we literally couldn't decide which ones we were going to pick uh, from. But he eventually does make the decision. Now, how's, what's the, how, how did they come to that decision, Max? Uh, the Feltons live in Wisconsin and the Jaegers live in Phoenix. And Albert Brooks says, you spend the winter in Wisconsin. <laughs> and I love that the crew breaks into a laughter. They're all just the like, researchers, oh. Yeah, the researchers just start laughing like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. And there, the, a, a, um, a common uh, theme throughout the movie is how much things cost. Yes, he's constantly talking constantly about Constantly talking about cost. And I think that has that that is real uh, – well, there's the phrase again – real life spilling into the movie because I read about the fact that even though this movie was made by Paramount, they told Brooks that if he went over budget, all overages would be covered by him. Oh, so, wow. So he was on the hook for this movie if it went over budget. And so I think that that had to have bled into the screenplay. Uh, and again, I'm talking about the screenplay by, by, by Harry Shearer and Monica Johnson. So before we get any further, we've set the stage for this movie. I do want to mention the opening musical number because, yes, there's a musical number. <laughs> but I do, I do just, just to set the stage for everybody, we have Albert Brooks. We have Charles Grodin as, as, uh, as uh, in, Mr. Yeah, Yeager. In, in um, peak Charles Grodin, yeah. yeah. Peak Charles Grodin, a script by Monica Johnson and Harry Shearer. So, Max, you and I have a chance to show the French what podcasting is all about. <laughs> <laughs> um, the opening bit, I mentioned there's this crawl where they talk about the PBS thing. And, how, and, it's, and it's very dry. You know, it's, it's, you, it looks like, um, like a documentary, you know, like one of, the, you know, like one, of those, one of those very serious 70s, you know, Harlan County, USA, or the Thin Blue Line documentaries. Right. And then Brooks comes out. He's introduced – by this local councilman who doesn't even really know who he is because he says, you've seen him on and he has to get out a card to read off his credits. And he's like the tonight show, the late Ed Sullivan and good night Saturday, which (laughs) good night Saturday. And you know, I didn't realize until that it's been a while since I've seen it, but I didn't realize he's playing himself. I have completely forgotten that. Yeah. He's just Albert Brooks. And so they bring Albert on stage and then Albert who's dressed like a cowboy. (laughs) <laughs> Which I guess is I think that's his idea of what people dress like in Arizona because he's got these like the neckerchief and like the Roy Rogers sequin shirt. He breaks right. into a musical number, so he brings out. He's backed by Mort Lindsay and the Merv Griffin band, but not the whole band, just as many of <laughs> members of the band as they could afford to bring out. Yeah, he he talks about that constantly. Oh, that we have these. Very expensive, you know. Just <laughs> throughout the entire movie, he's talking about how much money everything costs. During the song, he talks about the buffet, and he goes two grand. <laughs> two grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a song he supposedly wrote on the plane on the way over. I yeah, think. Uh, a little thing I jotted down on my well, you lovely yeah. people, and he introduces right. the uh, he introduces the two scientists. That uh, he, he's con- two doctors that he's constantly sort of using as like cover. You know, we have real doctors here, and there's a, there's a guy named Howard Hill played by Matthew Tobin, and Dr. Ted Cleary played by the actor J. A. Preston. If any of you have ever watched a movie in the '70s or '80s or a TV show, you've seen J. A. Preston. He's a very tall African American man, deep voice. He always played doctors, judges, sheriffs. I looked at his IMDb profile, and he's literally an authority figure. In like everything he ever did, um, you, he was in Body Heat. He was in Few Good Men. But you you don't know the name, but you soon just see him. You'll know. And he gets so much mileage out of this. But they already start seeding the story because as he breaks into the song, you see Doctor Cleary walk away with right. this disgusted look on his face, and you already know, uh oh, something's up here because Brooks want, Brooks's character cannot not be show busy. He just can't, even though he wants to imagine he's like some deep thinker, scientist kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, there is a good, there is a good a bit of characterization right in that first scene. Um, 
because it, it tells you a little bit about the town, about the city, because Phoenix at the time was growing, but it wasn't what anyone would consider necessarily a very big city yet. And the, the populace kind of reflects that. Um, Albert Brooks, like you said, is wearing, <laughs> is wearing this Western getup. And, and he'll wear these Western shirts for like the first couple of days, I right. guess, until yep. he gets, you know, so. Um, and the two doctors are very distinct. Dr. Cleary is, is obviously, he's very serious. He's written books, as, as Albert keeps mentioning. Uh, <laughs> on Jonas Salk's coffee table. We're all going to be on Jonas Salk's coffee table. <laughs> And and Dr. Hill, on the other hand, is much more of a – he likes to fade in the background. He goes along with whatever Albert says. Uh, he stays on stage during the introduction when Dr. Cleary uh, – and he later says, I don't want to be part – I'm not going to be introduced like I'm part of an act. Yeah. We have and, an act, Ted. You know what an yeah. act is? You've got a three-minute hunk, and then you got a four-minute hunk, and you can get to the, the, the details of what an act is. It's completely missing Dr. Cleary's point. Yeah, and like you said, it's because Albert is just so show busy, you know. And it, every reference is some showbiz reference, or how, you know, so and so paid this much for that, and you know, it's all. Um, he, and and what's interesting is that because of that, he when he has to deal with real people in real life, he's instantly in over his head. Yes, <laughs> he doesn't know how to deal with anything at all. Um, one of my favorite scenes. It's very early on. Is well, the the family comes home from a two week vacation in Hawaii that they've sent them on, and uh, the uh, the wife who's played by Francis, Francis Lee McCain, who yes, uh, for those of I do want to read a couple of her credits. She was in Gremlins, she was mm-hmm. in Footloose, Scream, Back to the Future, and something uh, kind of I think interesting called Firestorm. Seventy two hours in Oakland, so Shag. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and she's and she's good at playing moms, you know, which yeah. is you know kind of what all those are. And um, but she she comes back and and uh, she's on her period and she's not feeling good at all. <laughs> and um, so she you know and she's also having trouble with her with her husband, which is kind of a I guess kind of a callback to the actual uh, reality series that it's based on. And and she so she goes to her sisters for a couple of days. And in that time, she meets with Albert in in secret, in private, which is not supposed to happen. And, Ted, and, she called me. Ted, yeah. she called me. I didn't. I didn't make I didn't, her arm go across the and snap back. I, she called I'm me. I'm not Ted. an India rubber man. I didn't slither my arm across the street to make her call me. Ted, what are you uh, writing down? I'm just jotting down a few things. And and uh, she basically starts hitting on him in front of this in this little shopping center. And he goes, oh, you know, you you under you get me. You're so you're so understanding. And Albert instantly starts going, no, no, no I'm, shallow. I'm shallow. I'm shallow. <laughs> it's all right here. I'm very shallow. <laughs> There's more to you than you think. No, it's been rated, Mrs. Mrs. Jaeger. I'm very shallow. Look, there's a thin, there's a little shallow, and he's literally yelling at the yelling across the parking lot. Shallow, shallow. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he and he starts doing something that will pop up now and then in the movie. So he'll talk to the cameraman, yeah. who you know who he's not supposed to be interacting with, but you know, and you can see the reflect. Oh, I love the cameraman because they are constantly getting in, in each other's shots, which I think is you know obviously a choice. But they uh, so you never see their faces. You just see these guys with these big white helmets with these you know black glass spheres in front of their faces. Uh, hunched down usually trying to get the shot and and you can see when that in that scene you can see them in the uh, you can see one in the um, the reflection of the window behind Albert and he's just kind of like doing the shot and he's talking directly to the camera and you know there's little things that little details that keep popping up in this movie that just crack me up well, I love that moment where he, where yeah, as you mentioned, like she's, they're clearly her and 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 her husband, Mr. Yeager, uh, Charles Grodin, are having trouble right from the very beginning. Uh, and you right. see, like when he forgets to get the luggage, and she kind of snaps at him about get the luggage and all this other kind of stuff. And um, and and then when they when they meet, and she's like, she's she goes away for a couple of days, and then she feels bad because she's like, I'm ruining your movie. And he's like, No, there is no ruining the movie. The movie is the movie is the movie. Get it? It's reality. So she offers to 
let him come along to her gynecological visit because she's going to get right. her IUD removed. There's a whole thing about she's like, if you want to keep having, uh, I'm having this coil taken out. You want to have safe sex? Have it with one of your horses because he's a veterinarian. <laughs> and I love that whole bit about where she says, "I want to, you know, I'm going to allow you to come with me to my gyna, you know, my gynecologist's office." And she's like, and he's like, "Really? Film the gynecologist?" And she says something like, "I hope it's not anything, you know, it's not anything." She kind of like tries to like control the expectations, and then Brooks immediately jumps to, "No, no, no! I couldn't do anything explicit. I'm locked into a PG. <laughs> I'm locked into a PG." <laughs> His mind is constantly the movie. You know, he's constantly thinking about the movie. And then even at the end of that scene that you talk about, when she walks away, he's left just standing there. Right. And he's like, um, "I'll exit the shot this way," and he just kneels. Down. <laughs> he just kneels. <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's great, and the it's it's deceptively well done. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that this was his first uh, movie as a as a director. Oh, it's so assured. It's tone. It is it's so assured. It really is, and it's such a strange movie. I mean, I can imagine this movie being made now because people are are used to the language of, of reality TV and that sort of thing. But in those days, they had basically one example to work off of. And for him to be able to sell this idea as a movie with himself as a first-time director is pretty amazing. It's it says a lot about how much they, how much faith they put into Albert Brooks to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's it. It's it's only like ninety-four minutes. I mean, it's a short movie, but I mean, yeah, it really he does have like. It, it's interesting you say that because yeah, we've all now had. 40 years of reality television, unfortunately, to, to, to yeah. you know, have been digested. So we are familiar with the tropes of it. And it's like Brooks has already got that language down. And as you said, he had one example, really, to follow. And I do love – we. Uh, I, I didn't want to skip this scene where the family comes home and he introduces them all to the crew. And right. he gets this great ding <laughs> on on movies because he's like – well, because we're filming this movie with these five cameras, who and all those guys look like um, like diving bell guys. They all look right. like undersea, you know, undersea explorers. And he's like, we have this whole line of crew, and the, of course, the family, which are not movie star people, are like a crew. There's a crew, and he's like, well, it's all part of the cost. The union makes us take them. Um, right. So he says, okay, we're just going to go down the line one by one. And he's like, trucker, trucker. <laughs> and, and, and the family, of course, being nice, regular people, right. are trying to find out, shake the hands and know the names. Right. And he's not interested in naming any of these people. He's like, script. Right. And the woman's like, script? There's a script. No, no, no. Just, just let me just finish. We have it. Okay. Trucker. We have to, like, they all come together. They, they all come, come part of the package. <laughs> grip, grip, gopher. And then the little boy's like, where? No, no, no. But, uh, no, no, no. That's the name, the name of this person. That's a kid. Okay. Grow script trucker, another trucker. Uh, there's some other people here, uh, but we don't need any of you. So enjoy your stay in Phoenix. We'll see you at the premiere, and all these people just wander out, and we never see them again at that point. No, never again. And he also no, gets it's, that it's... he gets that other great dig where he talks about that he bought a house across the street from the Jaegers. And then he right. talks about where the crew is going to stay, and he, they're all staying at, at this hotel. And it's literally a hand showing a postcard of the hotel. And he's like, it's oh, the like travel lodge. The yeah. travel lodge, a nice place to stay. But enough about yeah. the crew. <laughs> yeah, he says, it's a nice place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, and later on, you, you pick it, it, it's just dropped in, but you get, you find out that the research scientists are also staying at that travel lodge. Right. He's right. the only one with a, like a house <laughs> 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 because he's, he's telling, he's telling, uh, I think Dr. Cleary, no, no, it's fine. Cause he's, he's trying to talk him into staying with the project. And he says, no, no, you know, if do you need a suite? Two rooms makes a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> you sleep in one room, you eat in another. Makes a big difference, yeah. <laughs> and, right, and th that is an ongoing tension throughout this movie is that Dr. Ted Clear, like, as you mentioned, the other guy, the Howard Hill, he seems more amenable to kind of the fuzzy science of this. But right. Cleary takes himself and the project very seriously, and he's pretty horrified right at the beginning. And right. and so he is the one who's sort of constantly nipping at, at Albert Brooks's heels and sort of saying, this is buffoonery, this is nonsense. And again, it all starts going off the rails nearly immediately because, again, it's right. – we see that Charles Grodin's character, he, he 
is so uncomfortable with a camera on him. And the first dinner they have together, he keeps talking about, you know, watch your mouth, uh, young lady. This isn't the kind of language we use at the dinner table. And the wife is like, since when do we have all these rules at the dinner table? <laughs> yeah. He says, because he just, he can't relax. I mean, she's always, she's like, Warren, what are you talking about? And he's always like, <laughs> yeah. and he's got this nervous laugh. And then there's a scene later on in the, uh, the veterinary office where he has to perform <laughs> surgery on a horse <laughs> Where he makes a very uh, common, simple mistake that's not right. even really his fault, because he prescribes the the uh, the halophane, the uh, the, right. the, uh, the anesthetic, the anesthesia, yeah. And he accidentally he doesn't even really accidentally order it twice. He just says it twice, and one of his nurses misunderstands and gives him five percent halophane, and it kills the horse. <laughs> and I will say, I don't know how you, you feel about this stuff, Max, but I find movies that have any scene with an animal dying, not, I, I can't laugh. Like, I just, I don't right. like them. I, I, there have been whole movies that I have turned off um, when they have a, an animal dying as a laugh line. I just, I don't want to see that. This is not the kind of movie I want to watch. This is one of the few movies that has an animal death for a laugh that I can stomach because it's not about the the animal dying that's funny. That's not the joke. Yeah. It's that Warren Yeager is making the biggest mistake of his professional career by letting this be filmed. And he right. begs Albert to edit the footage. And out, and he's like, could you, could I sign something? Could you sign something that kind of, you could, could you show me, could you show other footage of me saving all those dogs and cats? He goes, and I was like, well, I could, but then it would be on my mind and I can't. You know. <laughs> He's so selfish, but uh, yeah, it's, and that is a great scene. And yeah, I kind of have the same thing whenever I see a movie and there's a, a dog comes on or someone owns a cat or something like that. I always have this little bit of dread Yeah. yeah. because I mean, no matter what kind of movie it is, but I always think, Oh God, something's going to happen to that animal. Um, right, Cause why else would you bother to bring an animal into your movie? Yeah. You're gonna do yeah. With it? Yeah. It's, it's Chekhov's dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they, um, and but, you know, I tell myself, okay, for one thing, they're not going to let, they're not really going to harm any animal, and I have to kind of distance myself from it. That, and I have to take, I have to take myself out of the movie, I guess. But like you said, this one is so. I guess we have the idea that things things happen in surgery sometimes, and you know, especially sometimes with our animals. You know, if we take them in, we we understand that there's a risk with with any kind of surgery. And we should mention too, the surgery itself is ridiculous. The the horse is there because it had a heart attack during a parade, <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to do open heart surgery on a horse <laughs> to unblock an artery. They <laughs> so. got all the legs are all akimbo and stuff like that. It really is kind of amazing to look at. And it's and it's set up like you know like an episode of Marcus Welby. We get close ups of the ventilator. <laughs> we get you know there's a, there's a whole crew of, of assistants in there. And, and yeah, then, you know, they do, they make the mistake and the ventilator stops. They check the pulse. And they're like, no pulse, doctor. He's like, no, 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 that, that's not possible. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> because the owner is right outside. Oh, the button on that scene is unreal. Oh my God. But it's, yeah, it's great because, you know, he's having this conversation with Albert. Can we just not show that on the film? And obviously he's in his office. Meanwhile, the guy is waiting outside to hear about his, his horrors. <laughs> right, nobody's told and him what's happened. And, th- and this guy is, him. he's got a cowboy hat on. This, this guy is like clearly <laughs> like an old timey type dude. And he's walking around the halls looking for his horse. <laughs> and, and they, ca- he catches, uh, 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 Charles Gordon's character coming out of the, out of his office. And he tells him, Oh no, I'm sorry, we lost him. And, and the guy says, you lost him? How could you lose him? What's happening around here? Well, come on, let's go find him. And he walks off. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Charles Grodin just looks at the camera and then looks at the guy. <laughs> That's the end of the scene. He just shakes his head like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, like, it's the greatest button on that whole sequence. I'm like, this is so horrible. And the guy doesn't even understand what we lost him means. He just, and he wanders out of the frame. It's, oh, my God. It's, like I said, it, with this show, is already said, we're half hour in. We've already descended into just going back and forth with the lines. But that's what happens with these movies. Now, like I said, we have that scene. But then, then the other, the, the sort of um, 
parallel scene with the mother where she goes to her gynecologist's oh, okay. office. That's a genius scene yeah. of itself because he, he follows her in. And, of course, the, the receptionist woman is like, what, what, what are you – why is there somebody filming? And he goes, oh, no, no, I, I sent somebody from my crew over to get a release. And she's like, no, I don't think so. So then the gynecologist comes out. Now, the gynecologist is played by Johnny Hamer, who, of course, played Sergeant Zale on MASH. Um, right. And, boy, you know, Johnny Hamer, interesting guy in that he was in this movie and he, and he, he has a small role in Annie Hall. So it's like he was clearly like the go-to guy for brilliant comedians because, yeah. I mean, imagine working with Albert Brooks and, and Woody Allen like basically back-to-back. That's pretty – that's a – you know, just that would be enough to dine out of as like a uh, – dine out on as like, a, as like an actor. You're like, wow, I'm in like two great comedies. So anyway, he comes out. Matthew Reinert, I believe is his name. And he comes out and he's like, why are there cameras here? And he immediately starts flipping out and he puts his hands over his face because <laughs> right. the shield is from the camera. And he says, I've had some trouble with the 60 minutes people. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he starts saying, get out of my office. And, and Albert Brooks is like, well, I'm not here. We're not digging. I'm not, right. you know, he's, and then he does this role when he starts getting out this wad of cash. And he's like, look, I know what's going on here. All right. I want an abortion. So to see. We'll take two abortions. And he starts rolling off this money. She'll, she'll have a hysterectomy. She'll have a hysterectomy. He's like, and then here's some money for parking. $500, all right? And the doctor then lo- lowers his guard by literally putting his hands down. And he's like, you're going to give me $500 to film her examination? Then that's when Brooks goes, oh, my God. You're Matthew Rennert, the baby broker. The and baby all, broker. All these women are like, <gasps> and he's like, you ever see? Did you see that 60 Minutes piece? That was like children's slave auctions. It was amazing. It was the best thing I ever saw. And then, of course, it all goes to hell. And th- the doctor starts screaming. He's like, hey, yeah, Mike Wallace sent me an apology letter about that. He goes, oh, yeah, let's see it. He goes, it's not being permaplacked. And he pushes Brooks out of the door. He slams in the door shut. And then you hear, you continue to hear Johnny Hamer talk. And he, he's like, I'm so nervous. My hands are shaking like a 90-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> but I that love whole time, Albert like, Brooks is going, film it. I want this. Film this. I want, I want this. this. I this. And you just know that this guy's, this guy's whole practice is now ruined because he right. let the cameras in for two seconds because now everybody knows. Because you see all the women patients who are all pregnant women just – you know, running out of the office because right. of course they're your baby broker. Your baby broker, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and that's you know that is to me the genius of Albert Brooks. He takes these situations that are already uncomfortable and just like turns it up, <laughs> and and in these ridiculous and absurd ways. I mean, who would ever think? I mean, first of all, it's bad enough they're going to go film her at her gynecologist having an IUD removed. I mean, that's uncomfortable as it is and 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 just you know funny because it's you know who would do that and then it turns out to be this guy who mike wallace (laughs) did an expose on on 60 minutes and it just devolves into this you know almost slapstick in a way and you know it's it's something that albert brooks is just so good at yeah oh my god he just again he had that persona down immediately in the the tone was so exactly right because it does – it becomes so silly and yet Brooks is a – he's still worried about his movie. Like he's I get this. I want this. I get it. You know, because that whole bit. And I love how – again, I really think it's got to be from the screenplay um, because as far as I know that these movies were not ad-libbed. You know, these were scripted. Right. This was all pretty much nailed down. But like that Brooks is able to wring laughs – you talk about how it's heightened. But he's able to wring laughs from even the most mundane – circumstances you know and as the movie goes on they talk about how the doctors start noticing that warren yeager is acting different and they, they're right. like we're, they're like you're 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 altering your subjects you're you're supposed to stay out of their lives but you're not and they have this whole thing where they have footage of yeager as he is changing his he uses a different hand to pick up a coffee cup right and so this other guy, this other doctor comes in, a guy named Dr. Nolan, played by David Spielberg, uh, no relation, I believe. But he's a, if you ever look up David Spielberg, you've seen him in a million movies, too. Recognize the, you recognize the voice. But anyway, he sets up a projector to show everybody the footage of Warren Yeager, and he just yells, Lights? And Brooks is like, What? <laughs> he's, like, he's, like, he's like, We're not in a screening room, we're in my kitchen. 
If you want to, if you, you don't just yell lights. If you, if you want me, you want to turn the lights, just ask me. You're turning the lights off. Okay. And he gets up and he turns the lights off and you could see the doctor looks annoyed that he had to kind of put up with it. So they watch the footage. And then at the end, the doctor goes, lights? He does it a second time. <laughs> no, no, and that's, it's wonderful how he brings in, uh, these characters as, as the, you know, all the scientists who are very straight faced and trying to tell him, you know, no, this is, you're doing something bad to these people. And of course he completely ignores that. But, um, the more they push, the more he wants to do his movie, the more obsessed he becomes with doing his movie his way. Uh, <laughs> there's a part where apparently the, the studio guy that he was dealing with gets oh. changed. Oh my for, God! For, for someone who's more of an old school Hollywood oh. guy, and you never see him. <laughs> he's just—he's just a voice on a on a on a um, like an intercom. An intercom looks like Charlie's Angels. Like it's what it looks like—a yeah. little thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he keeps saying things like, "Oh, do you know what people want? A Paul Newman—that's what they want." <laughs> He's—I that whole setup is so goddamn fantastic because the idea that. Of course, you know, you're thinking about this is 1979, right? We're two years out from Star Wars, but pre-Star Wars, I think people that aren't old enough to remember, and I'm not, I'm not pretending that I am because I was, I was a small child. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it, but the reading I've done, that it's hard to appreciate how much the film world changed post-Jaws and post-Star Wars because right. nobody thought that any movie could make the kind of money that Jaws and Star Wars made. They just didn't think that was a thing. And post that, every studio started chasing it. And so you could imagine that in the world of this movie, Brooks got the funding by a younger executive who was more kind of a hip, easy rider kind of Martin Scorsese, Godfather, you know, William Friedkin kind of guy. And then that guy's lost. That guy loses his job and he's replaced by this old school guy. The, the actor's name is Jennings Lang, who's who's an actual movie producer. He was actual. He was not an actor. He was a producer. He's a friend of Albert Brooks. And oh wow, right, yeah. And so and he and the guy. Oh my, I could listen to the guy talk all day <laughs> because and the fact that you never see him. They show you a picture of him with his arms folded, and he's got like a seersucker suit, which is just fantastic. And he's just barking at Brooks because he's like he doesn't understand what this is, you know. And he keeps trying to interject. His old school ideas underscoring that he has no idea what the hell he's like. And he's like, you know, in my old days, you know, you don't worry about the guy with the cup. You get a Robert Redford. You get a Paul Newman, you know. And he's like, and then he even says, hey, Albert, you've got rock star friends. Would it be wrong to have Neil Diamond at this meeting? <laughs> oh, and he keeps calling Albert Rooks a schmuck. <laughs> Listen you to me, schmuck, you schmuck. You schmuck. This is the news. This is what you got. You got the goddamn news. You think people are going to drive down? They're going to hire a babysitter. They're going to drive. They're going to pay for parking. They're going to walk up to the box office and give, here's my four bucks. When time does the news start? You schmuck. <laughs> and Brooks even gets in a dig at him where he talks about, he says, uh, he, uh, he didn't find it important enough to show up in person for these meetings, but he does go by. And he says he was willing to end his um, – he was willing to interrupt his first vacation in over a week to come to the yeah. second meeting. He was, he was willing to call from Catalina <laughs> to interrupt his first vacation in a week. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, you know, that's another thing that's great about this movie is that it's, it's kind of – it's a parody of something uh, that most people probably don't even uh, – you know, I've – I don't. I have never seen the the show that it's based on, or that it's that it's inspired by. But the um, but it's definitely also a a parody of of the way Hollywood works. Yeah, and it works so well because he's basically, except except for uh, the the producer, Albert Brooks is encapsulating everything you ever thought about <laughs> about the way Hollywood works, and it's it's. Um, it works really well because like I said, it's, it's amazing how, how structured this movie actually is because it seems very loose and, uh, it almost kind of meanders, but the, but that's just, you're, it's designed that way. It's, it's made to make you feel like that's what's happening, but everything leads up to something else and it's all reaching. It's all meant to reach a point, 
and the and the climax of the movie. And I, one thing that we, we haven't mentioned is this is this project is supposed to take a year. It's supposed to be a year long filming of this family. It lasts two months, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that really tells you so much about what's going on. Because I remember I was watching the movie last night, like I said, and I was like, they were all day forty one, and I was like. How are they going to cram a whole year into the rest of this movie? They don't. <laughs> or they don't, right, yeah. Because, well, I mean, disaster falls when Cleary pulls out. Dr. Cleary, he decides, I'm no longer going to be part of this. And so without that scientific kind of uh, backing uh, or, you know, like sort of they're like vouching for this movie, without that guy, they start – the thing really starts to unravel. And I, I, we can't do justice to it, but that – again, I know we're just kind of going over scenes, but, man, the scene where he tries to comfort Ted Cleary – by subtly suggesting that the reason Cleary is uncomfortable is because he's the only black man in Phoenix. It oh is, my God. oh my, it is one of the <laughs> great comedy scenes about white uncomfortableness around yes. people of color because he so doesn't want to offend. He's so, he's right. like, well, you know, maybe you're, because you know, you're the only. It's Phoenix, you know. <laughs> and, and, then when, and then when Cleary finally says, Albert, you are you have more uncomfortable you are more uncomfortable around a black man than any white man I've ever met in my life, and of course Brooks takes offense at that, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, of course there's distrust. There's 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 black communication. Look, I understand. Look, he's like, I understand you people. You've got the whole next century wrapped up. You're faster. Yeah. You're smarter. Use heat better. I've seen oh. Africa. Boom, there it goes. And he's, like, <laughs> and he's so desperate to prove himself as not a racist. And he's saying these horrible. He's saying things. these awful things. These awful things. And it's funny because it's that's another thing about this movie and about Albert Brooks movies in general is I guess in a way. I don't want to say that they're timeless things, but the, you know, the, to me now in, in this modern, you know, in where we are now, that to me is reads as such a statement on on the uh, and I'm now I'm doing air quotes of <laughs> of the woke you know idea yes. Yes. you know that that you know desperately trying to prove that you're not a racist by saying terribly racist things. <laughs> <laughs> It just it just resonates, and it's crazy how this movie that is almost exactly forty years old, yes, um, is is still relevant. Oh, you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, I mean, I in my head, I use that phrase. I've I've seen Africa. Boom, there it goes. It's just so <laughs> you just like, and and then later, and even earlier on, there's that scene where where Cleary is talking to the movie producer, and he's saying like. Look, he's trying to he's trying to let the guy know. Like Brooks has no idea what he's doing, and he uses a metaphor. And he says, "You you've hired somebody to fly a seven forty seven that's never flown a plane before." And of course, the producer goes, "That was Airport seventy <laughs> five." And, and then Brooks starts going on and on about how he's a million miler and he's got a pin that he can get into any airport lounge and can just sit and right. eat. And Cleary's like, you're missing my point. He's like, I'm not missing your point. He's like, I can just, I've taken a date to an airport. I just knock on the door. I said, I just want to come in and say, I'm not even flying anywhere. Missing your point. (laughs) And he's completely missing his point. Completely complete idiot. He's just a complete and utter. I mean, this, we've talked about this in, in his other movies is that I think Brooks is lacerating about everybody. They're just, is because you're, you're mad at the movie producer because he's completely, not understanding what movie his studio is making and that he is trying to insert Robert Redford into a documentary, like right there. But at the same time, you're like, well, yeah, Brooks has no business running a movie. No studio should have given him money because he has no clue what the hell he's doing. I mean, a lot of money, a lot of money from from what, from what they talk about. I mean, I think they even dropped the figures at some point, a half a million dollars. Yeah. You know, on it. And, you know, like we said, they talk about the research and the, oh, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to start going into lines, but they start talking about how, uh, you know, when they're picking the families that they did 145 separate tests, totally more than 2,500 test hours. And uh, <laughs> what is it? If these if these were converted into eggs, it would be enough to feed a city, feed a city the, city of St. the size of St. Louis for more than two years on a two egg per person per week basis. <laughs> it's <laughs> so know? specific about the eggs, the egg ratio. It's Yeah. Yeah. And, and he says, "Does it sound? Does it sound complicated? It was and expensive. <laughs> you know, they've, they've 
dropped a lot of money on him. So I can understand the producer is like, what are we getting for our money? <laughs> and then eventually they talk about that they're going to send the family to like one of those est retreats because, right. of course, the family starts crumbling. Uh, I mean, uh, Warren Yeager says something like, I, I'm having a nervous breakdown. I'm near near complete personality disintegration. And Albert Brooks says, oh, my God, I've, I've, I've never had a day where I haven't been near complete personality disintegration. <laughs> but but you, I also believe that. I totally believe that. Yeah, no, it's complete. Yeah, no, he's completely honest. I mean, and so, so and then that's when the purse strings finally snap tight because they say we are not spending all this extra money to fly this family to Colorado for horseback rides and massages. And the the thing basically ends because the family decides we don't want to do this anymore. I do love that Brooks' attempt to cheer everybody up is just dressed as a clown. Like he thinks that's going to work. He just comes on. He's like, oh, 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 you know. And, uh, With a rabbit puppet on his hand. The rabbit puppet on his yeah. hand. He starts talking, you know, but, you know, there's there's a meeting of the studio. I'm not invited. And the bunny's like, I'm not invited either, bunny. We're talking seriously right now. <laughs> <laughs> so then the, the family decides to bail. Charles Grodin and, and, and Francis Lee McCain, the, the, the Jaegers, they just say, we don't want to do this anymore. Well, and, and that's interesting because the – I'm sorry. The, the – what's interesting is that because, you know uh, – uh, Dr. Jaeger uh, basically becomes depressed because he's killed the horse. <laughs> right, he's killed the horse. Uh, right. his, his wife's grandmother dies. Uh, well, that's having... 88. That's very old. It's almost Yeah, 90. that's very old. It's almost 90. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, sh- and, you know, you know, it, there's all this stress on the family. And what's ironic about the whole thing is that all this pressure actually makes the, you know, he snaps out of his depression and the family kind of comes together because they're all against Albert. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? So the, the, he actually manages to bring the family together against himself, which is, you know, just classic. Yeah. Oh, God. It's yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. And I love that when they come over and they, they're like, look, we want to quit. And he's like, look, you know, you're only going to get half the money. Uh, you're not gonna. You're not gonna be. You're not gonna be in the union. You're not gonna have any SAG protection. And he goes. And he, then he starts talking about the daughter. And he's like, yes. I've seen her teeth. I've seen those things. They come right down to her waist. Like it's just like he becomes vicious. You're not gonna be able to fix those. You're gonna be able to yeah. fix those. They come right down to her waist. She's gonna look like a walrus. And it's just like so brutal. So then, of course, now he's depressed. Because this movie's over, he doesn't have, and he talks about, he's talking to the one crew member in the bathroom, and he's yeah, talking about Pete, how Pete he, the cameraman, yeah. He Pete the cameraman, and he's like, he didn't get Christmas, he wanted the popcorn balls, and he's not going to get that, <laughs> he's not going to be any Thanksgiving, no July 4th. So then he starts talking about how... Well, well, hold on, you have to you have to include that, at, while he's giving this speech, he's getting into, into his clown costume because, of a, because he made a commitment weeks ago at a children's hospital and he can't, he can't get out of it. So he, the entire time he's giving this speech, he's, dressing, he's getting into a clown costume. <laughs> this is, yeah, it was a thing I promised a couple of weeks ago I can't get out of it now. And he starts talking, first of all, it starts off with him convincing himself that what he has is good enough. He's like, right. so, in, he's like so, so the movie ended early, like an abortion. It's an abortion. My movie's an abortion. It's going on and on about his movie's an abortion. And then he decides, in a true act of desperation, that he's going to contrive an ending. And he's like, what's the most popular movie in the world? Star Wars. They blew up a planet. They blew up a planet. How did they do it? You're, Pete, you're in the business, Pete. How did they do it? And he's no, no, it's not going to do it. How about, okay. And the whole time, Pete is going, are you okay, Mr. You're Brooks? Are you okay, Mr. Brooks? Yeah. Muffle. Yeah, right. You can hear it. Yeah, he's got the giant helmet on. And then he says, "Jaws." The second most popular movie, Jaws. Well, you know what? There's an aquarium down down in downtown Phoenix. The guy that runs it is a friend of mine. He's a fan of mine. I know. We'll bring the family. We'll family together. Family. Giant shark. Do 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 do. And I'm out of my mind. I'm losing my mind. And he just (laughs) (laughs) that breakdown is just so perfect because he's in this tiny room. Again, getting into a clown costume. Getting into a clown costume in his, oh, in his, yeah. Oh God! Talking to the cameraman, who don't they don't normally speak throughout throughout the entire movie, and you never see their faces. Yeah, but he just keeps going. No, I don't think you're a failure, Mr. Brooks. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Brooks, it'll be all right. It'll be fine. And I just love it. He's like, no one says you can't start a movie real and end fake. So what are you going to do? Go to movie jail? Like I, I've used that phrase all the time. Every time somebody has said something to me about, can we do it? I'm like, what are you going to do? Go to like work jail? You know, like what's the big deal? So then he decides the third most popular movie is, of course, Gone with the Wind. And how did Gone with the Wind end? The burning of Atlanta. So naturally. 
Albert decides to burn down the Jaeger's house. <laughs> he just he, that look on his face because he's he's going through all these movies and he just keeps going no 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 and and then he hits on Gone with the Wind. He goes, oh Pete, you've never seen it. It's it's spectacular. They burn the city of Atlanta down, and then this like look comes across his face, and you're like, oh my god. <laughs> and, and the next thing you know, he's busting into the Jaeger's house where they're doing like this exit interview sort of thing with a tiki torch. I think. Yeah, he's got a tiki torch from their from their backyard. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just he's setting everything on fire. He's just like curtains and everything. Going, look at it. Look at it. This is my ending. It's beautiful. <laughs> and they're screaming. They're like, Albert. And they're like, and he's like, get the kids. Grab the kids. And then the one cameraman faints from smoke inhalation. And he picks him up. And he's like, film this. Film this. Did you get? And then we see the camera's point of view. And it's all out of focus, of course. It's all out of focus. <laughs> and, and, of course, he's carrying them out Scarlett O'Hara style. And, you know, they, they bust out of the house. The house is by this point in, engulfed in flames. He puts him on the he puts the cameraman on the ground, and he's going, "Film this! Look at it! This is my ending!" And he sits on the ground, and they watch the house burn. <laughs> he looks like a complete madman as he's screaming, you know, "It's real!" And it's like literally the house is burning. It's unbelievable. And then, of course, that ends with another with a another crawl. All the Brooks movies end with crawls. Where it talks about how the Jaegers were bought a new house, and as a as a token of the, the filmmakers' appreciation, they were given a north south tennis court. <laughs> oh man, that's that's the least that they did, <laughs> that they deserved. Yeah, no, and uh, what's the other part? Oh, that Doctor Cleary's book only sold four hundred. Only well, sold four hundred copies, <laughs> and then he was struck with a mysterious illness. We wish oh. him well. <laughs> And then he then he continues on where he talks about if you are a scientist, if you're like a behavioral scientist, and you would like to learn more information about uh, our efforts here, and it gives a toll free number. I would love to have known in 1979 what that number got you because it's a real number. It's not a five 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 number. It's like a real number. Oh, I should. I didn't think about that. I should yeah. have called it. I, know, I mean, it's out of date now. But I mean, so it's. it's and then the, the the final act of weirdness is in the the very last frame of the movie after the credits have over are over, and you've got the copyright notices and Paramount Pictures and blah 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 blah. A UPC code comes up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I looked it up, and they said it's that's a UPC code for Alka Seltzer. So really, just sort of the idea that this movie is like a piece of product, and it's again. Brooks is way ahead of his time with this idea that like movies could be com- commodified into that. Like they're just this sort of like they're like an, as Billy Joel said in the song "The Entertainer," like another can of beans. You know, it's just yeah. a, it's just a piece of pride. It's not it's not art anymore. It's just a thing. And right. so it really it it is just a brilliant movie. I am st- and and the movie didn't do that well. Uh, apparently, it opened up. Brooks tried to get them to open it in. Small, uh, a couple of small um, dates in major cities, and the, the studio didn't do it. And it basically didn't. It did. It didn't. It wasn't like a monstrous flop because it didn't cost very much, but it really wasn't very much of a success. And unfortunately, that would kind of set the tone for Albert Brooks's movies because none of his movies until Mother really ever made any money. I mean, right. I'm thank God studios kept funding them, um, but I guess because he could keep the costs low. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, he, could, he could convince the guy on the intercom that he, that yeah. he was making a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, you know, and we've, we've talked about this before, but Albert Brooks is, and you meant, you, had, you kind of alluded to it earlier, Albert Brooks is an acquired taste. And if, oh, you, yeah. if you don't have that, if, you, if it's not going to appeal to you, it's not going to appeal to you. But if it does, oh, oh man, it's, it is so rewarding to watch an I, Albert Brooks movie. I laughed as hard at this at watching real life this morning as I did like the th- second time I've seen it, and I've I've yeah. seen this movie dozens of times, maybe even maybe even in the hundreds because I actually have audio files of sometimes I listen to movies without any picture, and Brooks's movies are particularly good for that because they're all so yeah. verbal. So if you count those, then I've seen real life into the hundreds at this point, yeah. and I laugh. As much as I did, just record, just going back and forth with you with the lines. I'm laughing and just thinking about all the stuff. And it, they are jam packed for they're 90 minutes, but man, they must have like probably more jokes in them than I've seen. You know, entire action comedies that are you know two and a half hours long. I don't have as many laughs as what he manages to to cram in. So I just think it's a brilliant movie, and uh, it, I 
It's just an amazing document so far ahead of its time. Uh, And again, you can see how it sets the tone for the Brooks persona as it would sort of be traveling through, through all of these movies. So, so you, you said at the beginning, Max, this is your favorite Um, of the four movies we've, we've talked about this one and modern romance and lost in America and defending your life. I'm not going to ask you, what do you think the best is? I just more like, what would you, what order would you put them in in terms of your favorite to least favorite? I know you're saying least favorite, you still really like it. But yeah. if you had to judge the four of them, what order would you put them in? Uh, well, I would put I would put real life at the top. Um, probably. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> probably living in America. Is it living in? It's Lost, the in, living America. In, America. Lost in America. Lost in America. Sorry, Lost in America at number two. Um. Uh, and it's modern romance and and defending your life. Defending your life. Oh gosh. Oh no! I might put defending. Oh, this is too hard. <laughs> I might put. I might put. I might put defending your life at number two, um, and then um, lost in America, and then modern romance. And modern romance, just because it is such an uncomfortable film, oh, sure I still, is. I still like it. I actually, I love that movie. But it's not necessarily something that I'm going to go. Oh, I, you know, let's spend an evening watching modern romance. <laughs> oh, it's a bitter <laughs> pill. It's a bitter yeah. pill for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's not it's not much of a Netflix and chill kind of movie. No, <laughs> so, not at all. Yeah, I think that I think that would be my ranking. All right, that's fair enough. Um, I when I think about like I have a Letterboxd account and I've been rating movies as I kind of remember that I've seen that I'm going in and um, I haven't done the Albert Brooks movies yet, but I, I kind of think of like star ratings and I would honestly put these four movies, all the ones that we've talked about so far, as equal in terms of their quality. I would say these are these four are of a piece. I think Mother is a great movie, and maybe that's something else we, we'll talk about on the show at some point. But these four, I think, are, are the true masterpieces. But if I had to give – if I had to put them in a ranking order, and I guess I do because I brought it up, I would, I would put <laughs> Modern Romance as number one simply because I just think it's a masterpiece. It's it just, I mean, yes, yeah. it's uncomfortable as F, as the kids say. Yeah, yeah. But it – it's it it's just so stunning in its in its hilariousness and awfulness yeah. that I just I, I mean my god any movie that um, earned you a call from Stanley Kubrick uh, asking how the hell did you get that made that says something yeah. about your movie so I would put Modern Romance at number one I'd, I'd put Lost in America at number two then this one and then Defending Your Life but they're all. Super and the thing I like about defending your life is that it has a sweet ending because by that point he had mellowed a little and I don't yeah. I wouldn't want to see defending your life with a bitter ending I, that's not that movie um, right. I don't want Meryl Streep's character to to not be unhappy because she's so luminous in that movie so but at the same time it's it's happier Albert Brooks is just a, a, a different thing than the really acidic Alfred right. Bro- Albert Brooks and that's the w- version we get in the first three movies where he is just tearing through everything. <laughs> So, yeah, especially himself. Especially you know, I can't. Himself. Yeah, I can't. I cannot argue with that ranking. I mean, that's perfectly valid because ask me tomorrow, and my 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 list might be might be different in a different order. It's yeah, it's um, yeah, it's Albert Brooks is just so, and and I hate to admit this, but I recognize so much of myself. Oh in yeah, Albert oh Brooks. yeah. Yeah, that it almost just depends on the day and how I'm feeling that day. And, you know, it's just – and I guess that's part of the appeal about Albert Brooks and his movies is just that as uncomfortable as it can be sometimes, you completely relate. Yeah, it, it's frightening. Uh, I mean I, I, I don't think uh, – we've done – like I've done like 156 episodes of Film & Water. I don't think – there's a single filmmaker I've done four films of yet until this Albert Brooks. So there's a reason why uh, every so often I come back to you and be like, let's do another Albert Brooks. Cause I just, I, when I first discovered these movies, when I worked at a video store, I was like, I was like, these are, these are, this is me. These are my people. This, this guy, you know? And uh, again, he's made some other movies that are not quite as successful in, in both, uh, you know, financially and I would say critically, but these four are just such amazing gems. So I'm finally glad we got a chance to talk about this one to wind our way back and man, if they ever do release the the short films on in some sort of format, I mean, God, why wouldn't Netflix just get them or something? You would think, you know, you said we're Hulu or Amazon. I mean, just just stream them somewhere for Pete's sakes. They're brilliant. Um, but well, anyway, I was going to bring, bring that up actually because it's I don't understand why Albert Brooks movies are so hard to find. 
They're they're yeah. not on Hulu. They're not on Netflix. Uh, they the were they were on give... Netflix for like two months. Yeah, and then they got yeah. rid of them. Yeah, and I don't I don't understand why. And they uh, I had to get, I got it off of I had to rent it on Amazon. Um, but you know it would it's it's a shame that these movies aren't more easily accessible to people because I think especially now maybe the the people the the things that people might not have understood about these movies at the time or the things that didn't appeal to them might appeal to an uh, a different audience today oh absolutely oh this i mean this movie's whole notion of what how altered life is like when there's a camera in your face that couldn't mm-hmm. be more couldn't be more current couldn't right. possibly be right. more current so yeah, it's a really amazing movie. So, well, awesome. I'm glad we had a chance to, to do this. This was always so much fun. I mean, I know for people who haven't seen this movie, you're just hearing two people just laugh at each other as they're trading lines <laughs> back and forth. But that's the nature. I would say I can't I, I can't recommend these these movies enough. So, Max, uh, awesome, man. Thank you for, for coming back. This is always a blast. Uh, where oh, can, thank you. Where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, the main place people can find me is right here on the Fire and Water Network. Um, I woo, I uh, am the host of Plasticast and also the Mirror Factory. And online uh, social media, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at uh, Maxo Romero, and also at it's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory. Awesome, awesome! Hey, check out those shows, everybody. We love having uh, Max. I love having, having Max shows on uh, the network. It's one of my favorite things about the, the network in general. So, uh, of course, Thanks, every- you're welcome. So, of course, if everybody want to uh, want to listen to back episodes of the show, go to the website fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can follow the show on iTunes. Um, iTunes, yes, uh, you follow on iTunes and on Stitcher, and we're on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. So, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, so, until next week, that's a wrap. And Max, I got two words for you. James Kahn. <laughs> Is that real enough for you? Phoenix. Population almost one million people. A fastest growing metropolis west of the Mississippi. The Jaegers lived here in one of the newer sections of town, part of the 5th District. Their house was located at the end of a cul-de-sac called Bucrest Heights Drive. Warren Yeager worked here at the Arizona Veterinary Clinic, one of the finest veterinary hospitals in the New Southwest. The children attended school at Benjamin Franklin Grammar School, about two miles from the family's home. I was fortunate to purchase the house directly across the street from the Yeagers. It was the first house I had ever owned, and I must say, I was proud. That's it. This man, however, would not stop shaking my hand. The Jaegers were sent on a two-week all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii so I could get settled in without disturbing him. I knew the house had to be furnished with great care. living room was done in a neo-Mediterranean style. The playroom was done contemporary with a fun touch. Let's put it outside. And the sleeping area, well, with its round bed and large screen TV, let's just say if there were any single girls in Phoenix, I'd find them.